Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I am joined by an all-star cast of ECFR colleagues to talk about Europe and the great powers. Last year we celebrated ECFR's 10th anniversary and one of the ways that we did that was to go back to the organisation's roots and commission a series of power audits on Europe's relationships with the other big powers in the world. And two of these power audits have already been published on the United States and China, the two biggest powers. And in the next few months, we're also going to publish two power audits of the two great non-European Western powers, sorry, non-Western European powers, Turkey and Russia. Whether Turkey is non-European or not is very debatable. In fact, the very subject of the power audit. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) So um, why don't we go round some of these powers and look at the new map of the world. We've talked about Trump a lot and the United States uh, is obviously the the power that looms the the largest. It's uh, been an intrinsic part of the creation of the European Union from the beginning. And in some ways it's the change in the transatlantic relationship which is causing Europe to look differently at all of its other powers and for all those other powers to look at themselves. So maybe start with you, Jeremy Shapiro, who is Research Director at ECFR and the author of our power audit on EU-US relations. Thanks, Mark. Um, You know, the main result of the power audit, a little bit to my surprise, was that, um, in fact, the, the European attitude toward the United States has changed very little under Trump. In fact, really the only country that had, su- that had a major difference in the way that it saw the United States under Trump has been, was Hungary, and that difference was really more about celebrating his populism than about worrying about the direction that the United States was taking. Uh, there's been, a, in my view, quite a bit of rationalization. Uh, and in fact, when you, it, one of the things that came through all of the power audits together uh, uh, is that um, the United States really does shape the way that Europe relates to all of the great powers. And in fact, that um, Europe's relationship with, uh, with the other great powers is uh, pretty wholly dependent on and, and at times even derivative of the U.S. approach to these great powers, which means that, of course, the individual uh, European countries have relationships with China, with Russia, uh, but the EU as a whole doesn't have a geostrategic approach to uh, the great powers, particularly to China and to Russia and to the United States, of course, um, that is independent of the U.S. And I think that this has big implications in the coming years because uh, under the Donald Trump administration, it does appear that the U.S. relationship with all of these great powers, with, uh, with Russia because of the meddling, with China because of the uh, apparently incipient trade war, and with Turkey because of the very troubled relationship over the Syrian Kurds and some other issues that Asla covers, all of these relationships are deteriorating dramatically. And currently that means that Europe's relationship with these great powers, at least from a geostrategic standpoint, is going to uh, deteriorate rather dramatically. So strategic autonomy, therefore, shouldn't just be about Europe being able to defend itself from threats. It should also be about Europeans being able to think for themselves a 
about how they want to relate to Turkey, Russia, or China? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the partnership with the United States is very, very important to to Europe, and it will remain Europe's and should remain Europe's most important geostrategic relationship. But when you look at the way that the United States is relating to powers like Russia and China and Turkey today, you see that it has a very distinct interest uh, than relative to Europe, and that it's asserting those interests. And it has a president right now which is maintaining that it's going to put uh, America's interests first. So it seems to me that Europe needs to be a more independent actor on those critical relationships. So in a way we've kind of embodied the problem by getting the American to tell us how we should think about all the other relationships. Um, but uh, Francois, you and I um, talked about the China power audit for a whole episode very recently, so you don't need to go through all of the different elements. Right. But, but maybe you could talk a bit, as Jeremy did, about both how China fits into the kind of great power um, mindset which Europe needs to develop and to how well Europe is set up to do that. Um, but also maybe think about this whole question about how um, our relationship with China relates to our relationship with the US. How does that triangle work? First, probably you know what a cargo cult is in the Pacific. Uh, in the Pacific Islands, people used to believe that a messiah would come from the sea, bringing gifts, and would save them. I would say now there is such a need of China facing Trump uh, in Europe that at least some of the elite is beginning to have a cargo cult for China. China is multilateralist because we need it to be multilateral. <laughs> China is going to, you know, take it easy on WTO rules and adjust and adapt because the US is, is, is unfair right now. And unfortunately, the, work, the world doesn't quite work like the South Pacific Islanders would like it to be. You can have two problems for the price of one. So we have a US problem, and, and I haven't written the US power audit, but I, I, I notice when I talk to my simple folks, relatives, neighbors, I, sometimes they ask me about Korea because I'm interviewed about Korea, and usually the response from you know normal people is, oh, the two madmen. Uh, and I have a very hard time explaining that these are not madmen, including Donald Trump. It's almost easier to, to explain it for Kim Jong-un because he's defending himself. Uh, that's how people feel. So just as a prelude, but on China, uh, China, Chinese blood is flowing in our veins. Money, uh, a gold pot at the end of the road, if you will, particularly attractive to European elites, particularly attractive to European elites who are not completely aware of Chinese bargaining and business practices, which is it's not, you know, all that glitters is not gold actually and the promises are not always kept and that's how it's always been businesses don't like that you know promises are good as long as uh they 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 afford reward on the chinese side and how much of it is about business as opposed to strategy because you know china's obviously both active in lots of european countries and we talked about that a lot on the last podcast but it's also pretty active in a lot of our neighbors in the balkans it's building infrastructure i think they bought a fifth of ukrainian territory or or more than that even does that does is there a kind of strategic element or is it just a there is a political diplomatic element which is china wants the rest of the world not to contradict china on what it cherishes, on its view of itself, on its goals, uh, on
on international diplomacy. So it's ready to pay a price, uh, you know, and it's to make friends and to punish people who keep criticizing it. So you can call it political influence. I don't think it's really in the business of changing Europe, but it could very well free ride a fragmenting Europe because then it would find the job easier. The real goal is business on the cheap. Uh, and we have a lot of difficulty as Europeans to accept that. If we were Africans, we would have been born with the issue with a number of other partners. But with China, we discover it. Uh, a country uh, that will lend, but at higher rates than we expect. A country uh, that will not invest as much as it says it does. A country that's making bids for all, literally all ports in Europe. Not that it needs all ports, but it's going to look at who jumps through the hoop. Who answered? This is a, a, a kind of systematic practice. What about the transatlantic bit? Because uh, on the one hand, you said we shouldn't expect too much of China as a hedge against Trump. Mm. But the other side of that is, should we be worried about Trump dragging us into either a trade war or a shooting war over South Pacific, over islands in the South China Sea or other areas? Well, you know. I'm going to wade into US politics. It's very clear that Trump and the, the hardline Republicans uh, who staff his administration, they're very good at identifying the mistakes uh, of the previous administration. They saw very clearly uh, the bloodline, uh, Obama trying not to go to conflict, but on the other hand, they don't seem to have found solutions. So they hover between hostility to China and avoiding conflict with China. The result you can see in the steel and aluminum tariffs decided last week. All of this happens because there's a massive problem with Chinese overproduction and dumping, but because it's hard to hit China directly and it would get into a conflict on trade at the time when you have North Korea and nuclear issues, well, you take a sideways step and you hit everybody and it's up to the Europeans to, re to get up, cry baby, and turn to China and punish China in return. You can call it indirect sanctioning of China. So yes, we do have a problem because Donald Trump keeps saying he has a, he has a, a key adversary or enemy, but in fact, he's sinking the alliance uh, on a number of associated goals. He already sunk TPP, and now uh, he's getting into a trade war with, with Europe. Okay, so that was François Goodman, the head of our Asia program. Um, as we carry on going around the world, let's uh, let's look at Russia. Russia is the traditional strategic adversary of uh, of Europe, and in many ways, the sort of geopolitical awakening which started happening to Europeans happened as a result of Russia in two thousand and eight when they got, went into a war with Georgia. Um, Kadri, how's, how's Europe fared? What did you find in your soon-to-be-published power audit? Well, um, <clears throat> power audit uh, on Russia tries to cover the overall state of the relationship and define the challenge of Russia and pay a particularly closer look on the issue of Russian meddling in European affairs. And my main thesis is that we face a normative standoff with, with Russia. Why Russia is a challenge to Europeans and to European view of the world uh, is because Russia wants to revise the whole international order, post-Cold War international order. It is against uh, its 
certain of its aspects, such as emphasis on human rights, uh, popular empowerment concepts such as responsibility to protect. Russia would be happy in an international order that is a lot more state-centric, international order of 1945. And they try to achieve that. They are not really out on attacking West for the sake of it, uh, but they want to defend themselves from Western liberalism and uh, achieve a state-centric order, including in spheres such as internet governance, cyber sphere, information sphere, and, and so forth. And of course for the European Union that is hard because uh, our full modus operandi is different, pooling sovereignty as opposed to uh, defending it and, and, uh, and so forth. Emphasis on human rights, the idea that countries can join the alliances if they qualify. So basically uh, what Russia stands for is a challenge to our very values and, and worldview. And when you say our, I mean one of the big findings of the first Russia power audit, which was our basically our first publication, our first major publication as a think tank, was that Europeans were totally divided on, on Russia, but you found the opposite. Yes, I think we are, uh, we are divided and we are not. You need to approach it on two levels. Uh, on policy level, we are a lot less divided than we used to be. This is what we in the think tank business call nuance. <laughs> Let me explain. It actually makes sense. <laughs> Though you are free to laugh. Um, now, I think that Europeans uh, stick to what passes for policy, and that is sanctions, and that is the five principles on policy in Russia. Greece are supported, and it's not some sort of blind support. I mean, on sanctions, there is a lot of nuance. Countries understand that Greece work up to a point, but not entirely, but still they, they support it. Five principles are very widely supported. Uh, and, and countries are not breaking ranks. Even, say, Hungary, that really is the old man out in the sense that Hungary doesn't really even share that liberal worldview that all others subscribe to. Even Hungary says that, no, we are not going to go against sanctions. But you also, when we were talking earlier, saying yes. that there's a lot of shared ground on the analysis about what kind of regime there is in Russia, what they're trying to do, the threat to Europe. Yes, indeed. We, we asked uh, why is Russia a challenge to Europe and it was, we offered multiple answers and uh, countries or our researchers could tick several. And it was a very interesting nuanced picture that emerged and uh, overwhelmingly people see Russia as a challenge to European view of the world order. Uh, some see it also as a, a hard security challenge, but that is yeah. a minority. Uh, Russia as a promoter of social conservatism figures. Some also say that deep down Russia's posture is defensive, which doesn't contradict any of the above. So I, I as I said earlier, I became a believer in collective analysis. Because if taken individually, all countries have a prime spots and biases and, and you cannot really share analysis of any country. But collectively, actually, it comes together as a very nuanced understanding, which is impressive. Okay, so I'm quite looking forward to, to working out how the great powers relate to each other and, and how good a job Europe is doing as a great power. But before we do that, there is another great power that's come back onto the scene and um, 
in a way that's an even bigger challenge for Europeans to understand because Europeans have always looked at Turkey as a member state in the making and have therefore been much more focused on how its internal policies align with the acquis communautaire and with the rules within the EU rather than thinking about Turkey as an agent and an actor. But that's now changing, isn't it, Asla? It is very much changing, Mark, and two things are happening. One, as that process, uh, that process is obviously almost disintegrating, maybe that's too harsh a word, but it is what it is, and then we are also witnessing the emergence of a new and independent Turkey, as we've discussed before on this power audit. So uh, what this study reveals, this survey, it's of of course, let me stress, first of all, that it's a huge undertaking, not by me, but by ECFR, having 28 researchers in 28 countries actually really take the pulse and really go in depth in, in terms of the relationship with Turkey, Europeans' perceptions on Turkey. And the findings actually sort of reveal things we know and things we don't know. Uh, one is, of course, hypocrisy. Uh, and the sort of dysfunctional accession process has become a very ingrained part of this process, the way, and uh, despite the problems of the status quo, the elites are holding on to it, very much as a hypocrisy. In other words, a significant chunk of European elites, elites by elites, I mean diplomats and government officials and whatnot, are saying, let's keep the process as it is. They don't necessarily want Turkey on board, and they don't want to end the process either. It's sort of the very limbo status that is attractive. The idea of Turkey being almost more attractive than Turkey itself today. Uh, not just that, I think the wide gap, widening gap between European elites and European public opinion in different countries is a matter, is a matter of concern, is something that people bring up when they discuss Turkey. And, uh, but the idea of Turkey and Europe, not Turkey and EU, but Turkey and Europe is still a very powerful one. And we know that Turkey and Europe will be there as an idea, strategic partners, economic partners. It has been for a few hundred years, and it will be for a few hundred years. That's different. Turkey and EU is a different thing. And I think what is coming out is that this sort of slightly dysfunctional, slightly hypocritical process uh, is actually creating something akin to a a, a, a different stat membership status, not a membership to the European Union as we know, but sort of a privileged partnership of <coughs> some kind, which Turkey is there as an economic partner, strategic partner. And one of the things that's coming out is, of course, you know, there's a lot of cooperation, there's a lot of uh, strategic alignment when it comes to counter-terrorism, foreign policy, Middle East, energy and trade. Okay, so we now heard about the bilateral relationship between Europe and all of the great powers, but I suppose the big question underlying it is, is how the EU is set up to deal with a world of great powers and spheres of influence. First of all, I think you can't decide merely from values or principles, otherwise you're going to have a gang against you I'm asking what would European foreign policy would be if we have problems simultaneously with Russia, with Turkey, 
uh, and with China, for example. And the US. And a lot of the, <laughs> not to mention, of course, the US. Isn't that where we're at? So there is a question of prioritizing, there is a question of opportunity, there is a question of what do we want first. And I think this is really uh, becoming urgent. Well, what are the borders of Europe? And with a country like Turkey, what is Europe and what is non-Europe about Turkey in the sense that, okay, it's fine to talk about not uh, trying to transform, you know, sort of uh, Europe's abroad and not trying to impose European values on China or Russia and sort of being more transactional or more of a realist. But when you come to Turkey, you actually had a very difficult equation because it's a very polarized country, a very polarized society, uh, and uh, with a significant sizable portion of the population quite uh, willing to uh, sort of absorb European values, quite supportive of the EU process still, despite everything. And uh, where do you, what type of a relationship do you establish with Europe, with, with a country like Turkey? Can you really abandon the other half? Can you really... But that's the interesting thing about the hybrid though, because like, you know, when we thought of it as an accession state, we're focused on the 48% that wanted to join the EU. But if we think about it as a great power, we need to be focused on the 52% the that's running well, the I think country. 51, let's say. Let's stick to 51. 49. Uh, look, I, mean, I think that this is the, the problem is greater than that. I mean, it's Europe has not decided to look at the world uh, through a great power lens. In fact, it's not clear that there is a Europe that is even capable of that. You know, Angela Merkel gave a speech, it was actually in Australia, right after the Ukraine crisis, in which she said, we cannot return to a world of spheres of influence. Russia wants a sphere of influence, and we, we will not have that. It's contrary to our values. Well, you know what? I'd love her to be right. But, she, but, but that doesn't describe the world that I live in at all. all the world Last week, I heard a high European official. He was very happy because a Korean had told him, you are the only multilateralists left. And I asked the official, I mean, what does it mean to be multilateral if nobody else is? Yeah, I think that that's, that's exactly the point, that the, the notion that uh, Europe can exist in the world and can succeed in, a, in what is a competitive great power environment, a return to a competitive great power environment, when they don't even recognize, they have chosen to, to pretend it's not true that, uh, that this is a competitive great power world and that countries are, all these great powers in their own way, are actively trying to carve out spheres of influence. And if you're not going to be uh, a, a hunter, you're going to be prey. But also, if you look at the map of Europe, it's quite difficult to argue that the European Union has not been building a sphere of influence as it's expanded from 6 to 9 to 12 to 15 to 24. That's, that's the way Stop all the other for Turkey, and I think that's why I'm very happy that Turkey is not in. It's integrated, but it's not inside. We can deal with it as a partner, and we don't have to get into every problem, and they don't have to worry about their identity as some Eastern Europeans do. But isn't That's the Ukraine... exactly what President Erdogan wants. I know. <laughs> but isn't the Ukraine crisis the perfect illustration of what happens when, you know, the EU behaves uh, in a way that is not about building spheres of influence, it's just about respecting the democratic will of the Ukrainian people, but the way that it's perceived by the Russians is about building yeah. spheres of influence. And you end up with a war. But when it comes to that particular neighborhood, uh, Europe's eastern neighborhood, where Ukraine is the most prominent country, I actually 
do side with Angela Merkel because I don't think that you can do spheres of influence there. I mean, I, I think both Europe and Russia get it wrong. Russia thinks that it can have a sphere of influence in those countries. Uh, Russia does have a sphere of influence in those countries. Well, it has uh, laid a claim to it, it but has it hasn't quite exactly. It hasn't. It, it quite is in a contest for a sphere of influence with with Europe and with the United States and it, and with China, yeah. arguably. Yeah, and, but and someone is going to win that contest. It's not going to be Ukraine. No, no. I I think no one's going to win it because. These countries are what they are, and you know, Russia cannot have them unless they agree to be had. Uh, that's sort of law of nature these days. Whereas also European Union, we cannot reform them unless their elites collaborate, and they don't. So I think it's going to be a bumpy ride. I think uh, the, where we're getting to is the fact that we don't really know what spheres of influence means in an era of globalization, where lots of people have influence in different places and we had some sort of consensus in earlier periods of history about spheres of influence to do with military alliances, different religions, uh, being part of trading or other kinds of organisations, whereas now um, you know, the, the Eastern Partnership, for example, we say that's just, that's not a sphere of influence, that's just a, a kind of democratic right for different countries, but the Eurasian Union is a sphere of influence, um, and... Yeah, I mean, if you look at what has happened to Ukraine, okay, there, is, there was a struggle in Ukraine represented in 2014 over who would have a sphere of influence. Now, that, now neither side exactly prevailed in that struggle, but in fact, what what ended yeah, up happening is that the they divided the country. And so, uh, and it's, it is absolutely the case that Western Ukraine is in a Western sphere of influence and Eastern Ukraine is in a Russian no, sphere of influence. That was and the idea that, 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 that was a Russian decision. That, yeah, but that is Come the idea. Donbass. It's not. And, you know, Maidan was an anti corruption Come revolution. Donbass. And that, yeah. that, just you walk the streets and you understand what the sphere of influence looks like. No, but it, I mean, it, talk it to people and to see how the place both, functions. It's not, it's not a pro-Russian. It doesn't you know, have to be pro-Russian. It, it, it just has to listen. And in fact, that's, what you, that's exactly what happens in Belarus. They hate the Russians in Belarus, but they are certainly within their sphere of influence and they have to behave that way, and they do. Uh, and the only thing that the Which Ukrainians... Which is why they're so open to the Chinese, by the way. Yeah, well, it's... it's they're looking, they are looking for... That's exactly the thing. They're, all these countries are trying to fight mm -hmm. Russian influence. They don't like it. So, and they succeed fighting it every now and then. And every now and then a thing happens like Maidan that sort of throws away all the previous structures and Russian influence with them. They are uh, but something so demanding as the EU has to have a beginning and an end geographically, cannot extend. I mean, you can have influence, you can sure. do deals as you do uh, with Turkey. If you begin integrating in such demanding rules, first you'll get in trouble, as we do sometimes in Eastern Europe. And second, yes, you're provoking Russia. You're, going, you're, you're just going very far. Uh, I would plead for, for you know, choosing Turkey in spite of Erdogan for a number of reasons. You can get in jail, I think, in Russia for half of what you say in Turkey. In, in China, you would get sent to a re-education center for 10% or 1% even, you know, on an index of what's possible or impossible. And second, Turkey indeed is more integrated anyway, is more dependent. Thus, whatever Erdogan or others are, they have to some extent to depend on us. They cannot 
move the relationship well, what does choosing turkey mean because you know at the moment we're choosing turkey but to turkey do a is deal. not necessarily choosing us that's well, the other side well, of the coin I well, there's the question of which Turkey, definitely. But other than that, I think what what does it mean to choose Turkey? What type of a yeah. relationship? You can do choose you to do a refugee deal with Turkey, but does that that's, mean that you support no, Turkey? No, that's not enough. That's precisely, the YPG in no, uh, Kurdistan, no. for example. Well, May I quickly talk about Macron, Macron yes. President Macron, <laughs> because he really seems to have a new style when it comes to dealing with Turkey, and he invited Erdogan uh, in January to uh, Paris and this was the first visit, official visit to a Western European country that Erdogan had been dying to have for quite a while. He also invited all the other leaders that we have around the table represented by, yes. but you invited Putin, there you Trump, go. And, not and Xi Jinping. He went to Xi Jinping. He went all the way to China. <laughs> and, and, and there were deals made and contracts signed and along the way the mention of a few journalists in jail and a human rights activist here and there. But overall I think it really both sides were pleased. And to me this was exactly the new relationship with Turkey that he uh, wanted and he wanted Europe to So have. he can behave like a great power. You're saying, you're, you're, you're saying within the meeting Erdogan won. I'm saying or, both sides won. It's no longer your but, your, the, the, your grandmother's relationship, so to speak. No. It's a new type of relationship you, you, you with do Turkey. See but see, the same president, Macron, uh, publicly criticized Erdogan on human rights in front of him and got away with it. And that's the game, you know. And, and, and Erdogan clearly accepts some of the implications. Then Macron goes to China and when he's asked whether he would bring publicly human rights, he says megaphone diplomacy doesn't work. That just means that China is a much tougher, uh, 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 larger issue. And it proves my point that however irritating Turkey may be for us, we can still deal with it for a number of reasons, including the fact that it's dependent. With China, we probably can't. So I'm not quite sure how to, to bring this together because we had a fascinating first half where we looked at, at the different May kinds I of relationships. Yeah. quickly ask, <laughs> just a, a year ago, a bit more than a year ago, Angela Merkel was hailed for being the leader of the free world when she reminded Donald Trump the values upon which they would establish a relationship. Now, uh, should we forget about all that then? Yeah, I think we should no. probably forget about it. No, um, I don't I, think I, so. I stand I, on my statement that it's relative. I think and, it you know, Knowing on. China very well, I, I am hard put to find a journalist or a, a think tanker in China who would get away with saying things one can still get away with, I hope, in Turkey. Jeremy, you think we should, we should bend the Merkel doctrine? Yeah, well, I think Merkel herself has essentially binned it. I mean, I'm not really sure it was ever it was ever a doctrine. I think it was a it was a convenient way to to beat a president of the United States who was who was violating Western norms of of rhetoric more than of actual action. Uh, and and they and she wa she wanted to assert those kinds of things. I'm kind of glad that she did. But the idea that she does or will or could run her country on the basis of those values, uh, I think, was never was never in the offing. And what, what's interesting that you see about you, what you see about the Europeans, especially the large European member states that we were talking about, Macron, we're talking now about Merkel, is that they don't run their country's foreign policy according to these values, by and large. 
Um, but they also, what they do is they don't really behave geostrategically because they are covered by the Americans in terms of the great power relationships. And so they, they have no European approach, which is why the, the question of what, of, you know, what, is, what, what is Europe is a reasonable one. I'm not uh, sure that's true, though. If you look at the Iran, at the JCPOA, at the WTO, at Paris climate deals, that, that's very much the position that France and Germany and other countries are taking. Oh, but, but Germany, paradoxically, Germany is trapped more often than France. Germany is trapped, Merkel was trapped with Turkey because of the refugee issue. And that was so oh, important. Is, is, Nothing is else mattered. This is my point. Uh, and, and, and on China, Germany is trapped by the economic, by the trade issue even more so than So you're making are. Jeremy's point now. Yeah. I, th I don't think that it's completely thrown them aboard. The point is you aggregate different things and, you know, running a country is a difficult thing. So well, sure. I have, a lot of, I, have a lot of I have a lot of sympathy for these people. Uh, and I don't think, I'm not saying I would, could, could or would do anything differently. Uh, look, the, the Europeans have have recognized, they believe they have an interest in climate change, so they've created a Paris Climate Change Accord. There's nothing wrong with that, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not an expression of their values per se, it's an expression of their belief in their interests in environmental wow. health. I uh, don't, and I, they, and I think what, what we're not seeing is, is a, uh, a Germany or France or any of the big European powers running up foreign policy which is based on the values of human rights, the values of multilateralism. They speak these things a lot, but I have a lot of difficulty understanding where this goes beyond rhetoric. So Turkey is a foreign policy at this point for Europe. Can, you, can we agree on uh, that? I, I guess so. I think it's certainly moving in that direction. I'm not quite sure it's there yet. I so I, I think what we've shown through this is one, the. The, the biggest challenge is to start thinking of, as Europeans as a kind of great power. Secondly, there's a lot of conceptual confusion about what our spheres of influence in this kind of world and how do we make sure that if we do get into a great power game, we don't end up um, stumbling against the, up against the definitions of other great powers, spheres of influence and accidentally look like we're behaving in a provocative and an aggressive way without even realising it ourselves. And if we do decide to, to get into those sort of confrontations, how do we skill up and so that we can actually be competitive and, and have sticks as well as carrots if we get into these sorts of uh, conflicts. But the other thing, which I think is maybe one for another podcast, is this whole question about um, you know what it means to align ourselves with these different competing uh, poles in a more multipolar world and does it make sense to have a kind of permanent alliance with one pole or is it about having more transactional relationships on different issues it's been absolutely fascinating discussion and i think we should we should come back and do a few more discussions like this maybe specifically on the spheres of influence but also on this whole question of alignment but for now from jeremy shapiro francois goodman Kadri Leek and Asla Aydin Tashbash, as well as myself, Mark Leonard, is goodbye.